Uh, good morning. Uh, the committee meets today to consider the nomination of Lieutenant General B. Chance Saltzman for promotion to general and to be the next Chief of Space Operations. General Saltzman, welcome. I thank you for your decades of service and willingness to serve in this very important position. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. It's clear space is rapidly rising as a national and global security priority. On Wednesday, and just here in Washington, D.C., there were upwards of seven space-related events. And in Geneva, Switzerland, there was the U.N.'s second meeting of the open-ended working group on reducing space threats, plus others in France, California, Colorado. You see where this is going, right? So that makes for challenges and opportunities for the incoming U.S. Space Force's Chief of Space Operations, or CSO. The current Space Force CSO is General John J. Raymond. He's retiring this fall after 38 years of service. And if confirmed, Lieutenant General Chance Salty Saltzman will become the second CSO. Here's a little more background from the Senate Armed Forces Committee Chairman, Rhode Island's Senator Jack Reed, as he was opening Saltzman's confirmation hearing. Recognizing the increasing importance of the space domain and the growing threats to our critical space assets by China and Russia, Congress established the Space Force in the fiscal year 2020 National Defense Authorization Act. The first Chief of Space Operations, General Raymond, then the commander of the U.S. Air Force Space Command, was legislatively transferred in 2020 to be the chief. So you are the first to be nominated and have a hearing for this position. Saltzman looks to be coasting towards confirmation. His tenure is likely to drive the newest service's evolution for years to come, well after he leaves the service, like General Hoyt Vandenberg did for the U.S. Air Force. When Vandenberg suddenly died in 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower memorialized the general as an unswerving advocate for the precepts and cause of the United States Air Force, having left a lasting imprint on the service he loved so well. To explain the challenges and the opportunities for Saltzman to do the same for the U.S. Space Force, I'm joined by Coyote Smith and Brent Ziarnak. They're both professors of space power at the U.S. Air Command and Staff College, and Mir Sadat, who's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And finally, also Stephen Melvin, who manages the Navy Reserve Space Cadre. Here's our conversation. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you, all of you, for giving me the opportunity to host you on the downlink. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thank you, Laura. The views expressed by my guests in this podcast are those of the individual contributors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of their official organizations, any military service, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Okay. Now, with that out of the way, it's time for introductions. And let's start with someone who's been on here before. Mir, why don't you start? 
Hey, Laura. Uh, thank you for having me on uh, this panel, distinguished panel, actually. Um, my name is Mir Sadat. Um, I've been in and out of uniform serving our government for 15 years uh, in various capacities relating to space, space policy, space strategy at the service level um, and all the way up to the national level at the National Security Council. And Coyote, what about you? Hi, Laura. It's great to be here, and I'm so glad to uh, see my friends joining us today. Uh, I'm Coyote Smith. I'm a retired colonel from the Air Force, and I'm currently serving as an associate professor of strategic space studies for the Schriever Space Scholars Program at Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in beautiful Montgomery, Alabama. And Brent, you're up next. Hi, uh, I am also an associate uh, professor at uh, Air Command and Staff College's Department of Space Power. I actually uh, work, uh, I don't know, 50 feet from uh, from Colonel Smith. So uh, I teach um, uh, space power strategy, space power theory mostly to uh, Space Force mid-career officers along with uh, Coyote. And I'm also a soon to be retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force Reserve, uh, did space my entire life. So uh, thanks for having me. This is really a cool time, thanks. And last, but most definitely not least, our sole and very special U.S. Navy representative who is known as a space captain. Stephen, tell us about you. Laura, thanks for having me here. Um, I describe myself as a bit of a polymath. I've been an author, consultant, entrepreneur, government employee, recording artist, award-winning public speaker, unsuccessful politician, husband and father, safety guy, protection professional, regulator, and Navy Reserve officer. Uh, I've sailed on the oldest commissioned warship afloat in the world. I've checked down a U.S. military combatant command and set up another one. I fixed a ship in the same shipyard that built the last road galleys to fight in combat, and I'm happy to be here. Now, because we've got quite a number of you on the line today, when you uh, jump in and, and want to talk, please say, hey, this is Brent or this is Stephen, just so that the audience can keep you straight. This week, Lieutenant General Chance Salty Saltzman went up to the Hill for his confirmation hearing. And I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised by just how much he did say. And that was in response to questions that weren't always softballs. A big concern that was brought up by a number of senators was force generation. That's recruitment as well as transfers, training and retention. And while Saltzman said the Space Force already has more than enough applicants, not just anyone can join the Space Force. And Hawaii's Senator Maisie Hirono pointed out that on a recent visit to a regional satellite communications unit, she learned that the amount of responsibility, that's work, was going up while the force strength remained the same. She, in essence, was saying they're getting stretched pretty thin. I'd like our two Air Force staff college professors to take this one on, putting aside the argument for a Space National Guard to the side, because we are going to get to that later. What is the Space Force looking for, and what in your minds are the challenges and opportunities a new CSO will face in terms of force generation? Well, this is Coyote. I'll jump in here and uh, uh, throw in my two cents worth. Uh, the challenge that we have in the Space Force is recruiting people that have the right type of uh, academic and intellectual background. We're not looking just for STEM graduates. We're looking for people that are STEM savvy, but come from a wide variety of different academic backgrounds. We're really looking for people that are excited about space, that really want to make some contributions, and, and folks that are willing to put up with the stress of being in a new organization 
but they've got the great capability of actually contributing to an organization that will grow and maybe have benefited and been significantly influenced by their participation in the organization. We're also looking not just for the military member, but also for the contracting base that will come along and the commercial community as well that will aid and support the Space Force. When you think about space, you can't just think about the Space Force as being a military organization. It has almost as many civilians as it does military members that support and contribute to the overall mission. Um. This is uh, Brent. I'll uh, I'll be the bad cop to uh, to Coyote's good cop. But uh, honestly, if you ask my opinion on what uh, you know, the next CSO's biggest problem is going to be with people, it will not be recruiting because right now the uh, the rose is still pretty much in bloom uh, for the space force. It's new. It's supposedly exciting. It's got a lot of uh, interesting um, interest in you know the greater community. But what's going to be most interesting that General Raymond did not have to deal with is going to be retention of the people that were in, you know, the Space Force now. Because uh, back when I went into the Space Forces, you know, the Air Force Space Command, um, it, you know, closer to the beginning of the century, uh, space was the least asked for uh, specialty code from the academy. Now it's the top, and it's based entirely on hope of what the Space Force is rather than an interest in the mission itself. And it's really not any different than Air Force Space Command was. The Space Force is not completely different. And I'm afraid that a lot of the best people that are coming in are going to leave at their soonest opportunity. And when you say that, I think something really important to point out is that the skills and the training that the Space Force is going to provide so that they can become space operators is highly sought after in the commercial sector where they can get a better work-life balance and a much better paycheck. I mean, how how is the CSO going to be able to address that and, and the rest of the leadership that is below him? I, I would say, no, go ahead. All right, I'll, I'll jump in there. This is Stephen Melvin. Um, so, so part of the issue that the CSO is going to have is the same issue that all of the services have in retaining and attracting technical talent, and and not just technical talent. It's it's the talent of anyone where you have a, a high a high demand, low density type of person, uh, special forces, technical shipyard type folks, air construction type folks. Uh, a lot of these folks can make a lot more money back out in the civilian sector. Uh, one of the ways that the, I know the Navy and specifically the Navy Reserve has uh, gotten around that is by letting them go do their day job, but then keeping them on the weekends. And I know we'll get to the reserve component on, on in, in a little bit, uh, but that's one option uh, that works uh, in, in some models for the reserve component. Uh, the other option, and, and the CSO has a tremendous advantage over the other services, that he doesn't have 200 years of tradition, uh, or in the Air Force's case, you know, a half a century of tradition, a little more than that, uh, to hamstring the new folks coming in. Uh, so they can make it be whatever they want to be. And, and this gets to what uh, Dr. Coyote was saying uh, about how th these people can influence that organization. The hard part for the CSO will be not squashing the visions of all those people coming in based on the organizational uh, culture that already exists that's come over from the Air Force since the majority of those folks grew up there and they may not even realize how they're influencing the people coming in. This next topic is a hot one and one that I know that is near and dear to Coyote and perhaps um, to the rest of you as well. So anyone else, please jump in at will. Should there be a Space National Guard? 
Salzman said that there are three options and that, well, we've been hearing it for a while. And in the meantime, there are reports that space-specific Air National Guard units are experiencing budgeting gaps, training delays, and may end up being stuck in the Air Force without a space mission. What's going on here? Is this really an unsolvable problem? This is Brent. Uh, no, it's very much an easy problem to solve. And that is to take no action that's uh, crazy or radical um, until we've actually looked through uh, the implications of everything. Now, now, General Saltzman said we're not going to take any action at all until we think about, uh, you know, everything um, all the way through. The problem is, is that we've had a Space Force since 2019 and uh, someone in the Department of the Air Force decided that they were not going to bring over the reservists. So the, the Air Force Reserve space people have no home and haven't had a home for three years. Uh, and the Space Force seems entirely intent on making sure there is no reserve component, just part-time active duty. And they keep saying, uh, General Saltzman himself said, we're hoping to get this right so there's uh, you can retain talent and you can bring new talent on, presumably from the commercial industry. I've had people since 2018 come to me and ask, from, uh, these people are from SpaceX, from Blue Origin, ask me, how can I join the Space Force? And, you know, almost five years later, I have to tell them there is no way you can join the Space Force as a part-time person right now. It's, uh, it's really one of the worst things that the Space Force has done so far is the treatment of their reserve component. So let's say somebody from SpaceX who has the right skills and the right mindset and, you know, wants to continue to, you know, have their job at SpaceX because yeah, that's a pretty, well, sexy company to work for. What do they first do? I mean, do they just sort of look this up on the internet and they just go down, you know, rabbit holes that lead nowhere? Do they call somebody and some, you know, somebody says, well, sorry, we don't really have that. I mean, what happens to a person who tries to attempt that? This is Mir. So the, the current situation, that person would have to join the U.S. Air Force to do space, or if they want to contribute to Space Force, or they could join the United States Navy and be a Space Force officer or the Army and become a Space Force officer. The problem right now is that there is a problem. The problem is that the there's a one component system, right? All the other uh, branches or services have a two component system. There's a reserve component and there's an active duty component. Right now, the Air Force and the Space Force looks like they wanna play with a one component system. A one component system basically means that the, your reserve cousins or brothers and sisters are not equal to you. They're subservient to you. They're the hired help. They're the people when one of your active du active duty folks wants to go to a war college or you know has paternity leave or something like that, then some, you call someone up. But the difference between a you know colonel and the Space Force and then the, re the reserve Space Force, if it were one, there would be no difference. Right now, there would be a difference because the command tours, the milestone tours, whatever you want to call them, there's nothing like that for the reserves. And I'm a Navy reservist. Uh, in the Navy, what, I, I, as an officer, they don't distinguish between, now they don't. When I first came in, there was a little bit of a distinguished factor, but I come in in uniform, I'm considered a Navy officer. 
I'm not considered a reservist officer. I'm a Navy officer. I have my ribbons. I have my qualifications. I've, there's a level of competence that I have, and I can walk into an active duty role, and I can walk into a reserve role, and I'm expected to perform at both components. Right now, there's nothing like that for the Space Force. And there's really, you would have to go to the Air Force to do that. And so it doesn't make sense that we have over a thousand space operators abandoned, abandoned behind, I don't want to say behind enemy lines, but let's say behind parochialism, behind parochial lines and a different part of the Pentagon. And of course, that other service would be stupid to give those up. Why would the Air Force give up the smartest, talented, brightest reservists to the Space Force? But the Space Force needs to evolve its thinking and realize that this is a hidden gem. You know, when I was deployed, I had like the number three guy from IBM who was a lieutenant commander with us deployed there, the CFO or something like that for this major company. And he's deployed making $70,000 overseas, right? Giving up half a million dollars. The guy knew so much more than any of us. That's what you get in a reservist. So right now the problem is, there's a one component system. They need to break it up into two. And then, of course, after that, there's this factor of National Guard that you have to consider. At, at the risk of uh, beating a dead horse slightly, uh, this is Stephen Melvin again. Uh, just two, two things. Uh, so, so Sultan said that he his primary responsibility when it came to the reserves was to have unfettered access to the capability in the reserve. Uh, I would prefer to clarify he's probably looking for unfettered access to the additional capacity that the reserve component brings. I look at reserves in two big buckets. There's capacity where I need more of the same, like a watch floor that might be nine to five, but if the balloon goes up, I need to bring extra people on. So then I bring in extra capacity. The capability, on the other hand, is something I might not necessarily see or need every day. For example, for Space Force, it might be uh, rapid launch capability or, for example, ComSat expertise. Uh, I might I might not want to have that every single day to pay for it, but I might want to be able to have it on tap if I need it. I have other examples in, in the Navy. Um, but the words he used to describe the single component are, are pretty much all the capacity bucket. And it does make it harder, uh, as, as my predecessors here have pointed out, that uh, to, to take advantage of the, the part-time talent that wants to keep doing their day job and continue to build that civilian expertise. To, to distinguish that from the guard side, the, the one question that I haven't seen out of the debate yet, and I would love to see somebody uh, address this, is which missions really belong uh, at a state level and, and then, you know, maybe with some additional capabilities that the, that the national level can bring in. Uh, for example, Task Force Fire Guard here in Colorado, they do a great job using uh, overhead assets to look at wildfires. Well, fighting wildfires is, is a state mission, so that makes perfect sense. Um, I, General Saltzman also brought, uh, no, one of the senators, I apologize, brought up um, the states that have spaceports. Uh, it was came from Virginia. So, so if, uh, for example, uh, a perfect mission for the Guard might be operation and defense, a civilian spaceport in time of war, because that is a national asset. So that is a state mission that influences a national capability. So that's slightly different than what you would expect from someone who just does the same job as the active duty or the reserves if the balloon goes up. Yeah, this is Coyote. I'd like to just jump in and talk about the benefit of, say, having a Space National Guard. Uh, in addition to the roles and missions that Stephen talked about, I envision uh, each of the 50 states having a space control squadron. And by that, I mean guardsmen that uh, will have satellite jammers, satellite lasers, and other types of offensive systems that can be used to deter attacks against our satellites. 
I'm not talking about picking a fight or going to war. I'm talking about actually having the type of hardware that allows us to hold at risk those types of space systems that our principal adversary, and I'll call it China, as General Saltzman did in his testimony, uh, make them think twice about pressing ahead and, and doing destructive type of activities. The benefit of having that scattered across all 50 states is while space will continue to be best managed centrally on a global scale, but having those 50 separate units will also give us 50 governors worth of political leverage. Uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Something I'd like to also mention here is a couple of problems that General Saltzman, Salty's going to have to deal with some very perverse incentives against the development of space power. When the Space Force was created, the Air Force did not want it and was in open rebellion with the Senate in their vote to actually support the Space Force. And the concession that was made was, okay, we will keep the Space Force almost exactly at, you know what Air Force Space Command was, but you're going to have to do everything on the cheap. You know what? You can't do space power on the cheap. You can't do Navy power on the cheap. You can't do land power or air power on the cheap. You're either serious about this or you are not. And unfortunately, the way we have set up U.S. Space Command, those Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine components, they're not necessarily there in order to tie space capabilities to their forces in the field. One of the missions of those units there is the perverse incentive of holding the Space Force down and preventing it from acquiring new roles and missions, meaning its budget would go up and everybody else's budget would go down as a result. And so as a result, so because of that, uh, we have those perverse incentives that General Saltzman is going to have to contend with. He was confronted with that very thing uh, in the Senate where they did say, you know, we've looked at the budget projections and was it two or three years out? It just sort of goes off the cliff like lemmings. That just makes no sense, especially when we understand that the commercial side of space is just burgeoning and going forward with all kinds of new technology. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Ohio and watching these young engineers print rocket engines and they're doing it uh, under a DOD contract. So there is stuff that is going on that is going to need money for Space Force to be relevant, quite honestly, as opposed to just sort of running around in dad's old car. So how how is Salty going to do this? Because he's not going to be able to take this on head on because that's, well, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's politically incorrect for him to do so. He's got to stay within his right and his left. What happens next, guys? I mean, or is it just hoping that the senators and a bunch of congressmen and women see it? If I may jump in, this is Coyote again. Uh, I strongly believe that uh, we need to make a push for a separate and independent department of space. And the reason for that you know, the Air Force right now says, we're going to save all this money because we're going to put the Space Force underneath the Air Force. And we're going to use the Air Force bureaucracy to support space. No, that's not what happens. The Air Force takes care of its primary mission, which is air power. Oh, yes, and space. And it's unfortunate, but the, the same old problem lingers because we're under the Department of the Air Force. Now, I have a great example, and it has to do with when the United States Air Force was the Air Corps underneath the United States Army. Airmen were unable to advance air power until the emergency situation of the Second World War was rising, and then it was almost too late. Congressman Rogers made a statement in one of his um, 
interviews with the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Staff a few years ago. Uh, that was Wilson and uh, Goldfein. And he asked them specifically what they thought about a space core, establishing a space core on the road to an independent space force. And they said that they thought it was inevitable, but the time is not right. And Congressman Rogers asked them, what are you waiting for? For the enemy to get stronger or for a disaster to happen? And we have got to stop sitting around waiting for a disaster to push us forward. Speaking of disasters, and just because I don't want to forget this part of the possibility of a space National Guard is the role that space increasingly plays in addressing natural and man-made disasters. Space components are in, what, a handful, maybe two handfuls of, of states would it not be in every governor's interest to have a space national guard or am I just being foolish here? I mean, does Rhode Island really need a space national guard component? This is Brent. Um, I, I tend to think that yes, eventually once there's a broader understanding of what the space force and the space national guards roles and missions are, eventually there should be uh, at least a small presence in each state that has the federal mission to be able to, uh, you know, rapidly reconstitute uh, the space, the space capabilities to the state in times of conflict, and then in its state mission to better link and show uh, entities in the state, local governments and stuff, how they can better take advantage of space capabilities for uh, state economic development, you know, from a day-to-day basis. And then in the event of natural disasters, how best to, you know, take advantage of space capabilities for, uh, you know, disaster recovery. That doesn't require hundreds or, you know, thousands of people of guardians in each state. Sometimes it could be just a small headquarters of five or six people that are linked regionally to somewhat larger units. Uh, But that, again, requires a broader understanding of what the Space Force and its reserve component can do for the nation that we have to have the uh, discussion to uh, to develop. There seems to be a lack of education, perhaps, towards the state houses, because if this could be such a valuable tool at the state level and, and also valuable at the national level, what on earth is holding them back? Do they lack just of- not realize, it, realize what's on the table? This is Coyote. Yes, they absolutely do uh, have a misunderstanding about what's on the table. And we still have to fight the giggle factor where people think we're talking about science fiction. And I've had some discussions with certain people around the, the, the state house here in Alabama. And we're putting together an idea that, you know, if you have a Space National Guard, that Space National Guard does the things like the counter space mission, and it can do the disaster emergency relief missions as well. But you will be able to harness national level capabilities for your Department of uh, Agriculture, for your Department of you know, uh, human services for for all those different types of roles and missions out there that we use in the military would be more feasibly connected to each state's personal growth and development. This is Stephen Melvin. Um, Laura, you, you asked, what are they waiting for? And, and I'll, I'll point to the historical example that, that Coyote brought up, and that is air, the development of air power. You know, everybody knew that air power was going to be important, uh, you know, between the world wars, right? World War I to World War II, you, got, you had the barnstormers taken off, 
and and you had the air shows around the country. So everybody was fascinated with it. And you get to see a lot of fiction like uh, the, the diesel punk uh, issues of the Rocketeer and, and, and all those kinds of things came out. But largely, uh, most folks saw it as science fiction. I mean, you had H.G. Wells with his airships, you know, battling things out. And, and I think that that is the same factor that you're going to have to fight. The question is, will we get ahead of the disaster or will we have to wait for the disaster? History's not on our side on this one, especially when people have to deal with day-to-day -day problems. Um, but that's, that's going to be a major factor in the debate of whether we have a guard, whether we have a reserve, or whether we have a single component when it comes to Space Force. And this is something General Saltzman uh, or his successor, you know, probably the top, the next two or three are really gonna have to nail down. And, and I'll, I'll actually point you uh, at, a, at a great article uh, written by uh, a good colleague of mine named uh, Brent Zarnick from 2019, August, called The Battle for the Soul of the Space Force, where they discussed, he discusses the difference between the Brownwater mission, which is all inward focused, or the Blue Water mission, which is outward focused to a certain extent. Uh, and if you watch what, you know, the as General Saltzman referred to it, our, our primary adversary China is doing, you know, we, we like to play chess in the Western world, right? We, we know all the moves, we know what to do. China likes to play Go. They're always looking for that corner position, right? Which is why if they can get the moon um, or they can get there before us and they can block us out from it, um, there's not much we can do. Lieutenant General Quaston in a great uh, speech basically says, you know, whoever whoever gets this right, it doesn't even matter what you do here on the planet. That so goes Laura, this Laura, there's yes. a there's a, a generational factor here too. Don't forget, you know, uh, it's the last 20 or so years that space has become very commercialized, like proliferated, right? And think about the air domain, for example. You know, it was pretty much a national security domain until commercial came in there and it took you know, a couple of decades for it to really become the commercial sector, right? And you see the infrastructure for space, right? We don't have an FAA for space. We don't have so many different things that need to be for that just to support the commercial. So there's a generational gap because some of us are in this working space every day. We see it. We see it closer than anybody else. But the general public, the people on the Hill, and some of the policymakers in the White House, whichever White House or the Pentagon, they don't see it as accurate as we do. And so there's a generational factor that you have to calculate into that they have to catch up. The problem is some of us are on page 200 or 400 or 500, and they're still starting the preface, right? And we're trying to pull them into it. They're going, whoa, 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 what's going on here? So that's one factor. The second factor that's also important that we need to take a look at is historically, you know, we're republic, we're organized different than authoritarian regimes and so forth. But there's an advantage that authoritarian regimes have. For example, we have something called combatant commands. All of our combatant commands look around the globe, right? Central Command, Middle East, Africa, that kind of stuff, Pacific Command. How does China organize its combatant commands? It's internal. It's focused on regions within China, right? So a space guard would be very useful in, in the case of homeland defense because each one of those space components, right, for each of the states would be defending the homeland, just like what we had during World War II or the post-World War II era, you know, the, the bombers that were in California, they had a specific mission. So we need to start thinking, like what Stephen said, what is the adversary doing? And, and are they playing chess or three-dimensional chess? Or are they playing Uno? And how can we organize ourselves without going against the sentiments of the founding fathers of our constitution, right? But at the same time, using some of the playbook stuff that they're using, we could have that internal homeland command here. 
we can't, you know, I mean, NORAD does a great job of tracking Santa, but you know, how about if there's a million Santas flying over the homeland, right? How are they gonna do that? So this is something I think that's very useful. I think the governors get it. I think people in DC don't get it. This leads to a question that I have about Salzman's overall vision uh, for the future of the Space Force. And he was asked very pointedly, you know, what is your vision? He said, and I quote, if confirmed, my vision for the Space Force today and in the future is for the Space Force to be the most capable, combat-ready Space Force in the world, unquote. He followed by saying that the U.S. Space Force meets that standard already. I'm throwing this one out to the floor. Is it really ready for, you know, real on orbit or dare I say blue water space combat? Well, before you go there, I'm, I'm just going to point out, he, as you said, the most effective combat ready space force in the world. Much of space is not in the world. So I'm just going to point that out real quick. Uh, and if our adversaries are, are going to put space capabilities out outside the world, then we're the most effective inside the world. Well, Lieutenant General Quast, as I said, pointed out that, that that doesn't matter as much. And and now back to your question. Sorry. No, that's quite fine. Anyone want to take this one on? Yeah, this is Brent. Um, it's for many, many years, for decades, pretty much the entire time I've been in the service, the United States and especially, you know, the, the Air Force in space lived off of the goodwill that their forefathers gave them. You know, and for many, many years, we've been eating the seed corn to where uh, I think it's very debatable whether or not, you know, the Space Force is the most capable combat ready space force in the world right now. I don't think that is at all confirmed or, you know, that's that's it all. It might be true, but it's certainly not absolutely incontrovertibly true. Um, and honestly, I would rather my chief of space operations not talk about how awesome we are and all I need to do is keep us as awesome. Uh, he didn't have much of a vision. He didn't tell us where we had to go. He didn't tell his junior people that are among the best, highest uh, human capital people that are coming into the Department of the Air Force right now. I need you to be working on these problems because by the time uh, I'm done. I want these significant problems solved. And he just didn't provide much of a vision of anything. Uh, is the Space Force supposed to be a satellite combat command? Is it supposed to be able to destroy or defend a whole bunch of satellites? Uh, I'm telling you, whenever someone talks about deterrence, they are almost never talking about anything active or <laughs> exciting and I just don't think that he had a vision that a lot of his junior people will be inspired by. And that is what is the biggest problem in my perspective of what the Space Force is. The military is very good at taking the most exciting things and making them terminally boring. And space is the ultimate example. Yeah, this is Coyote. I'd like to chime in on that and follow with Brett. One of the things that's problematic is General Saltzman is not free to take a position contrary to the Secretary of the Air Force. And Along with that, the Air Force's goal of spending as little as possible on the Space Force and using its air power bureaucracy to represent space before Congress gives us a distinct disadvantage. When it comes to being the best, most capable combat Space Force, well, you know what? Uh, no. 
in my classes that I teach here to our mid-grade officers, I implore them not to make their systems dependent upon space because we do not defend space. And when we deploy forces to a forward area, we typically lease commercial capabilities for them and we do not defend those commercial capabilities. We have got a very significant setback. Our adversaries have been growing their counter space weapon systems uh, dramatically in the last 20 years while we were busy doing other things. Now they're able to hold at risk every one of our satellites on orbit many times over. We are not in a secure and safe situation. If you take a look at the dependence of this nation just on the global positioning system, you would be terrified. Those are 24 operational satellites on orbit that provide the position and timing systems that keep our internet up and running, that keep our mobile telephone towers up and running. They're the same satellites that are integrated into our electrical power grids and maximize the output of the power across these lines. And if you lose that system, you're gonna experience rolling brownouts, grayouts, and blackouts across our power grids. 24 targets in that global positioning system. The United States right now has roughly 80 military related satellites on orbit. The Chinese have over 129. And the Grange Point too. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things uh, I had been sort of shouting about is we need indemnification, right? We need indemnification and we don't. And now I think this week I heard this Deputy Secretary of Defense mentioned that this is a big deal. And uh, until we have that nailed out and explained for companies, uh, especially now that Putin and China are in sort of a you know de facto alliance and they're basically calling all of these commercial companies that provide things to the U.S. government as potential targets, maybe this will help us get to that point where Coyote's mentioning it's going to that that threat or that potential danger might actually get us to act efficiently and do the right thing. Um, but even then, it'll well, I think we're moving too slow. I think we've agreed that what what Secretary Deputy Secretary of Defense said. She's agreed that we must come to the starting point, but now we got to start moving. And until we start moving, we're going to be left in the dust by China and Russia. Something interesting also came up during the hearing, which really made me pay attention. And that was a question of whether or not the U.S. Space Force needs some sort of change in the law to help achieve Congress's intent. And, and that was asked directly to Saltzman. And there are authorities granted to the chief of space operations, um, which he said were sufficient to meet the intent of Congress. But I ask this because the CSO has the authority for force design, but there seem to be a number of carve-outs. Can somebody please explain what those carve-outs actually are and what does it mean that the CSO has the authority for force design, just for the general listening audience. Well, this is Brent. I'll try to put out uh, something that sounded an awful lot like a sausage making question that had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there was something going on there that I'm not aware of. I'm just a school teacher out in Alabama, right? But um, uh, if you ask my opinion, I think the Space Force has plenty of ability, just like you said, it needs to start exercising its ability before Congress might be willing to give them extra, you know, extra powers and stuff like that. I would like to see the CSO be a full, robust chief of space operations like I know General Saltzman can. It's uh, simply a matter if uh, the 
you know, Department of the Air Force will, uh, you know, protect its Space Force. I'll point out one thing, too. I, this, this is Stephen again. Um, I, I don't necessarily have the answer to your question. Uh, as, as Brent said, that's, there's a lot of sausage in there. But, but one of the things I'll just highlight real quick is that General Saltzman said that he had the authorities necessary to do what he's currently being directed to do. And this goes back to the comment I was making earlier uh, about Brent's article, The Battle for the Soul of the Space Force. It goes back to the culture of, you know, you now have all these people who grew up in the Air Force. Uh, are they being asked to do more? Are they being asked not just to look at the last war or what we think the current fight might be or what the pacing threat might be in a decade, but, you know, 20, 50, 100 years? Uh, I, I will speculate that the answer is probably not. Um, because in this country, we're not, we don't tend to be very good at looking past the next election. That's just the, the, there's an old saw that says, you know, the, uh, uh, that we, we tend to plan for the next election. You know, China's planning for the next generation. Um, and and that's, there, there's a real cultural battle there in terms of the military, because the military is answerable to the civilian leadership, uh, as it should be, right? But the civilian leadership has to direct that vision. Are, are we going to be the next space power? Um, and, you know, Mr. Musk, you know, who has at one point changed his Twitter handle to the Imperator of Mars, um, you know, he would like us to be the next space power. But I'm pretty sure that he's willing to go it alone if the U.S. government doesn't eventually get out there and, and, and be able to defend his stuff. If, if he's got commerce between the moon and Mars, and the U.S. Space Force isn't there to defend it, then he's probably going to get armed security and build his own. Um, that's the sort of thing that, that as, as you pointed out, uh, at the governor level, you know, the, do they really understand what space brings to their state? At the national level, do the politicians, do, do our populace really understand what that benefit is going to be today and 10, 50, 100 years from now? The one last point I'll make here is that space is an exponential technology. You know, if you ask somebody in 1989 what the impact of the internet was going to be, there's no way they would have come up with what we have today. I mean, one of the most famous Bill Gates quotes out there is, you know, 64K should be enough for anyone, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's, a, if that's actually his quote or if it's a paraphrase of what he said, but, but the point is nobody really knows what all these exponential technologies are going to look like in 10, 20, 50, 100 years. Uh, you hear a lot of people saying things like, you know, I don't see any real space commercial stuff going on in, in, for the next X number of years. But what they're doing is they're applying linear thought to an exponential technology. And as humans, we don't tend to be very good at that. Peter Diamandis has a great example that he gives. I'm not going to go into it here uh, about why we're not very good at it. So this is one of the things that General Saltzman you know, again, it's answerable to his civilian leadership. Hopefully in that role, he'll be able to help guide them down the path of this isn't just ne the next, you know, 10 years, 50 years, maybe the next 100, 200 years, if, assuming we want the, the nation to last uh, another 200 years or so. This is Coyote. Uh, you guys are terrific. I, I want to go back to what Brent said about the sausage being made. Um, I don't think it's sausage. I think what we're watching being made is haggis. And I think that's uglier. And, um, I like when, haggis. Yeah, nothing beats a good haggis burger with just a little bit of Duke's mayonnaise on the top. Not a sponsor. It would be quite good, yes. Well, anyway, 
Moving forward on the, the question about roles and missions, when we first envisioned the creation of the U.S. Space Corps, the legislation body that we wrote down here and provided to the members of Congress at their request was basically an expansion of the Coast Guard's Title 14. And we, we called ours Title 14 Alpha simply so that people would see the analogy there. Basically, what we wanted was Coast Guard-like authorities assigned already to U.S. Space Command not necessarily funded, but as placeholders for roles and missions that will accrue and aggregate to U.S. Space Command, which they then can delegate down primarily to their spacefaring component, the U.S. Space Force. We were looking for assigned roles and missions such as environmental stewardship, space debris removal and cleanup, planetary asteroid defense, uh, safety of navigation, uh, uh, inspection, damage mitigation, and also law enforcement. And that's not to say that you're going to have some type of space vehicle with a sheriff pulling up and checking something, but there are sensors and monitors that can be commanded and controlled very affordably that we can do something other than decide that everything is an attack. Uh, right now, our space force and our space personnel are sitting on consoles, and if they have an anomaly, they don't know whether it's an attack or if it is uh, a criminal act. Is it a 17-year-old with a fancy piece of equipment that's messing with your satellite, or do we have a larger problem? And so those are the types of things that General Saltzman, bless him, is going to have to deal with. And Salty, I wish you well. What about opportunities? We keep pointing out he's got a lot of problems to solve, but I would imagine that anybody who is the head of a branch, even one that is subsumed to another branch, you know, yeah, they've got a lot of problems. What about the opportunities? So I'll, this is mere. So one of the opportunities is, you know, it's going to be very difficult to be dependent on a organization that is doesn't have your best interest at heart, right? It's, it's very difficult to do that. It, it, there's a lot of trust issues, and even if there are, the just trust issues will be ongoing. So one of the things that Space Force really needs to have, because space, as much as it is a technical issue or a problem, it is def definitely a legal issue, right? A policy issue. They need their own lawyers. We need space lawyers. We do not need Air Force lawyers who are very good at aeronautical legal issues or maritime issues or otherwise to be space lawyers. The Space Force needs its own space lawyers. They need space lawyers who are deep-rooted in air, maritime, weather, whatever specialty that they develop and they should be able to use all of them together, but they need their own lawyers. Because all of these treaties that are out at the UN that are we're going to form as a result of all of our bilaterals, all of these, they, they will need that. And we don't need an Air Force, bless them, JAG, who's here on a two-year rotation or three-year rotation and then moves back somewhere else in the Air Force. We need that organic talent. We need to grow that talent. That talent needs to be infused throughout the entire force, right, throughout the Space Force. Every freaking... Yeah, space guardian should have you know a little card in his pocket knowing what things that are important to space force right the second thing that's very very important and i'm sure salty's very happy that space force netflix got canceled is public relations public affairs the space force must manage and have its own organic public affairs people their own peo grown from the roots up right one of the things that people were upset about, and I don't want to offend anybody who's a weapons school graduate, but was 
We can't have weapons school people in charge of space and we shouldn't have space people in charge of you know, uh, pilots, right? Same thing here. Public affairs for space is very different than public affairs for Air Force. We need this piece here because there's a certain type of people you're trying to bring in that's a little bit different than the Air Force. And they need to be able to have that. They need to be able to recruit that talent. They need to be able to, every, every Space Force guardian should be a public recruiter, right? And all of this. And so from right there, there are two things that they can fix that are major problems for the Space Force right now. Huge problems. Let me add something that they into fix. that. They need to be able to own their own narrative. I'm so sorry, Amir, but when I heard you say that, it just reminded me of, you know, you think of story arcs and, you know, how I'd like to have you all introduce yourselves because I want you guys to own your own narrative. And this is something that is definitely missing from the Space Force, for sure. I'm so sorry to interrupt, though. Please go on. Yeah. So basically, I mean, this is the part that they have don't have control over, and this is how they're being perceived. They're being perceived by the public and they're being perceived by the international partners. A, a space general going to the ITU to negotiate needs to have his JAG with him, his or her JAG with him that, that is well ingrained in that, right? That doesn't take two, three years to go learn what space laws are or regulations are. These, these are things that, that need to grow into it. I know it's costly, but you know what? You can't build a space force on the cheap, like Coyote said. You're going to have to spend some money because other our adversaries are spending a whole lot of money on this, and it's very important to the nation. I, I'd like to jump in real quick. Uh, since, since Mir went last, I'm, I'm actually going to point at Mir. I'm going to point people at the uh, State of the Industrial Space Base, um, or Space Industrial Base uh, report that came out a couple of years ago. Um, in terms of opportunities, that's one of the things that uh, General Saltzman will have a, an opportunity to influence is the industrial base. Uh, we know this uh, from, from the maritime power, right? If we don't have a good maritime industrial base, it's really hard to reconstitute that in a short notice. And, and you know, while it's in its growth stage, it's the right time to do that as opposed to trying to backfit uh, a bunch of capability that has been lost uh, over time due to uh, drawdown on things like that. And, and especially when you're dealing with large projects, uh, launch projects, things like that, big dollar values where you you have a lot of people, uh, if they go away and they go into some other industry, it's really hard to get those people back. The other thing I'll, I'll touch base on real quick is culture. Part of the reason the Space Force was founded was to have a different culture than the Air Force. I mean, it's right there in, in all of the speeches that the people who uh, were advocates for the Space Force in Congress, in the administration, in the last administration, et cetera, their echoing was, this culture isn't getting us where we want to go. And I think it was Peter Drucker who said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So um, one of the things that, that General Saltzman, any, any chief of staff or, or head of the service can influence is their culture. Cultural artifacts, things like uniforms, titles. Uh, there was a big debate about whether they should use Air Force titles or not. Um, you know, things like the stories they tell about each other, the heroes that, that they choose to venerate. Who gets promoted? Who doesn't get promoted? Um, there's a great book uh, by Carl Bilder called Masks of War, where he goes into the different services and what each service values and, and, and what they will inevitably come back to. Uh, what is that going to look like for Space Force? Well, General Saltzman has an opportunity, the, probably the biggest opportunity, to take his service, uh, assuming confirmation, uh, to take his service, not just set it up for the next administration, the next decade, but possibly 
for its entire history. Brent, I know you wanted to add something. Jump in. Oh, no, the 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 two before uh, Aaron Steven are right on. And, you know, being the designated Debbie Downer, you know, this uh, this hour, I'm going to try to be a little bit uh, positive here. What are the opportunities? Americans are still the best people in the world at space. We are. We are our own worst enemy. And if we stop being our worst enemy, we tend to do pretty well. Uh, so that is the number one opportunity. But General Saltzman has two things going for him very well. One, we have the commercial space industry that is making advances in, you know, just everywhere, all across the board. Uh, you know, I don't want to put in a plug for, for SpaceX just for the heck of it. But if Starship flies, that might well be a, you know, a, a dreadnought type moment where there's an inflection point in that old space forces are not all that useful anymore. You know, the new ones are going to be built and Americans are very, very good at that. And we're poised to do that. The other thing that he has is he has the best lieutenants and best junior enlisted that have ever been in military space ever, except for maybe the early 60s. So what he needs to do is connect his best and brightest lieutenants because the, the best people coming from the academy are not flying anymore. They're going to the Space Force. Let them spread their wings, get them connected early on with the people that are making, you know, the movers and shakers in the uh, commercial space industry and let them be the people that can build the blue water service that uh, that America wants, because America would like someone more than just deterring attacks on GPS, as important as that is. And, you know, the United States still has all the cards. It is up to, you know, the chief of space operations to play them correctly. This is Coyote. I'm going to pile in on what Brent said there. You had me, Brent, right up until you said, let them spread their wings. We're still stuck in our culture. And this is a very big point. Now, I'm going to take this. And I'm going to go to uh, three completely awesome opportunities that General Saltzman has before him that he can capitalize on in order to help us build our culture, build our narrative and be the ones who communicate it. We need to have our own independent legislative liaison in Washington, D.C. And those legislative liaison dudes and dudettes need to be talented, not only in terms of uh, uh, their ability to communicate, but they need to have a little bit of a tech savvy so that they can learn readily from their other spacefaring counterparts in D.C., such as NASA and the National Reconnaissance Office and those other commercial spacefaring entities, because our legislative liaison should do more than just legislative it should also be a, a idea collection organization that pulls in from those other various spacefaring sectors out there the next thing is we need to have uh air uh, excuse me listen to me i'm doing the same thing uh we need to have space attaches in foreign countries first in all of those major spacefaring countries and then in the lesser spacefaring countries uh, it was my experience over in England that our air, air attaches were too overworked on the air side to really contribute much to space attacheing, if you will. And, and lastly, we have an awful lot of technologies that are starting to bloom. There's different types of propulsive techniques that if we make the appropriate investments in them, we may be able to generate uh, satellites that are no longer trapped in the repeating orbits of orbital mechanics, where satellites that can maneuver out of enemy fire that are faster or slower than orbital mechanics would suggest. Uh, I've even heard of a design of a satellite that has a 
yet-to-be-developed type of propulsion system that you would simply launch the satellite itself without a rocket, and the satellite itself will be able to propel itself up to its space altitude orbits. These are the types of things that uh, General Saltzman has the opportunity to promote. Legislative liaison, space attaches, and uh, propulsive systems that get us out of the trap of orbital mechanics. If he can do two out of those three, I'll kiss Brent on his bald head. So, so one of the good parts is the space attache is taken off. So I, 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 we are designating there. I don't know at what rank or any of that stuff. I don't know. Um, the, the other thing that it's important to know is, you know, in the Air Force, and you guys are Air Force people, so I'm, I don't want to insult your intelligence. The first chief of the Air Force, you know, 18 months or something, right? General Spatz. And it was Vandenberg, right, that really built it. So not saying that the first CSO didn't do any work, but the second CSO has the advantage of all the work that the first CSO did, right? And he can blame a lot of it on him too. If things went wrong, he can say, it wasn't me, it was that guy. So it's him. And he, you know, Vandenberg, next five years, built the Air Force, right? And 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 to what it was. So he, he Salty has this opportunity here to be the Vandenberg of the Space Force. Um, if he does listen and does break down some of those barriers and does push back. And if if he does not push back, like Vandenberg pushed back, then yes, we, we will have a colossal, miserable failure. It will be a lot of tax dollars that were wasted. The aspirations and hopes of, of, a, of a nation went to waste. But if he does step up and become the Vandenberg of the Space Force, then, then you know, we'll have a beautiful success. Gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. And uh, before you, we all sign off, Mir, I'm so sorry. I forgot that you were in the Navy. So we have two Navy guys on this. And again, thank you guys so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. Thank you for the invite. Thank you, Laura. And Coyote, you're going to have to unmute yourself to say anything. Hello, Laura. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad that we had this time together. It's great seeing Mir, Brent, and Steve, and uh, I hope we can do it again soon. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavus Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.